Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we know that you are high and exalted above all things, that it is a privilege of ours to see you that way, to know you that way, to love you that way. Through the good news of the gospel, by faith alone, Lord, we can love your exaltation and desire to be with you in your exaltation. Father, as we come to your word today, it is again our prayer, powerfully speak to our hearts, put us in a place of adoration, of worship, of you, gratitude and thankfulness for what we have because of the work of Christ, and an eagerness and a willingness, Lord, to share the good news of the gospel with others, and also a desire to serve your people as well. We thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you for this time together. And we, we ask that you would be glorified and that we would be built up and encouraged in the faith as we gather around your word now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, we have traversed the first seven chapters, the book of Romans, and we are getting into Romans chapter 8, verse 1. One whole verse for us today. The title of our message is Delivered and Thankful, and it flows out of what it is that we saw the close of chapter 7. Before we get, in it, get into it this morning, I want to ask a question. How, is, how do you feel today? How is everybody doing today? I imagine that there are all different types of places where people are in their life right now. There's one in this room that's very unhappy. <laughs> And um, I imagine that maybe if we didn't have the filters we had, we'd be, some of us would be doing what he's doing. Um, it's interesting. We go through different seasons of life. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling really strong. Spiritually, you're feeling sharp. You're feeling like you're on top of things. You feel like you're scaling the walls. You're conquering. You're... You're doing great. Spiritually, you're just on top of the world, and you're really rejoicing and happy with where you are and where the Lord has you and what you're doing. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling weak. You're feeling like you're not quite sure why you are in the season where you are. You're feeling weighed down. You're feeling dull. You're struggling with your in your Christian walk, you feel like you're crawling through life. You feel like you're tired spiritually. Maybe you're worried, you're confused, you're anxious about things of this life, things of the world. You can't sleep, your mind is racing, you can't sit still, you're, you're frantic, maybe even at the point of being paranoid. For whatever reason, maybe the circumstances in your life, maybe you watch too much of the nightly news, whatever it may be, 
but you're just in a state right now where you're worried about something and it's overwhelming to you. Or maybe you're just in a season of being cold. Spiritually, you feel cold. You feel numb. You feel lifeless. You feel like you're just going through the motions. If you're being honest, you really don't care much as to what's going on or, or where you are spiritually. You're, you feel like you're cold and your heart is of stone. I heard, I heard a story a couple weeks ago by D.A. Carson. And he said, you know, imagine that you're, you're in Egypt, you're an Israelite, and it's on the eve that the um, angel of the Lord is going to come through the camp and kill the firstborn. You've been told tomorrow night's the night, and you're standing there and you're listening to two men have a conversation, and one of them starts off with saying, man, I'm worried. And the other one says to him, well, what are you worried about? Well, haven't you heard? Tomorrow night, the angel of the Lord's coming through the camp. And he's going to kill the firstborn. I don't know about you, man, but I'm, I'm kind of anxious. You've got three sons. I've only got one. I'm kind of nervous about what's going to happen tomorrow night. Aren't you? And the other says, what is there to be nervous about? The Lord told us what was going to happen. He told us we, what we should do. Didn't you kill the lamb? Didn't you put the, door, the, the blood on the doorpost? Don't you have your, your family ready to go? You got your shoes on. You're all, you're all girded up. You got your little loaves of bread baked, and you guys are all ready to go for your journey? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go, but I'm nervous. I'm scared. Why aren't you? Because the Lord's faithful. Don't you trust in his promises? Didn't, isn't he always true and doing what he says he's going to do? Don't you know that if you put the blood up, you're good. The angel of the Lord's going to pass over your home. You don't have to worry about losing your firstborn son. To which the other replies, I don't know, man. I know. I did it. But I'm still scared. I'm still nervous for tomorrow night. And then Carson asks the question, which of those two men lost their son? the following night. And his answer was, neither. Why? Because salvation did not depend upon the strength of their faith, but it depends upon the object of their faith. They trusted in the Lord. He told them what to do, and they did it. And the one who is anxious and worried and scared of losing his firstborn son did not lose his son in just the same way as the one who was strong and confident in his faith that he wasn't going to lose his firstborn son. Because it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. And for us, if you're here this morning and you're strong, or if you're weak, or if you're confused, or if you're cold, it is not the strength of your faith or how you are feeling about your faith or where you are right now. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the object of your faith that saves you, and you do not stand condemned in his sight. And that is what we see from Romans chapter 8, verse 1 this morning. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the good news. I am so thankful that my salvation 
does not depend upon my goodness, depend upon my, my strength from day to day, day in and day out. Because I got to tell you what, it comes and it goes. And there's some days where I feel like a million bucks. And there's other days where I feel like I just want to crawl into a hole. And my status before God doesn't change one bit. Because his love for me and the salvation that I have in him it's not based upon how I feel at any given moment. It's based upon the finished and completed work of Christ. And that is what it, we see this morning in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I want to read our verse, and then I want to draw our attention to two things in particular this morning as we consider the fact that we are delivered and we're thankful. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some manuscripts have an extension of the verse, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I'm not going to cover that this morning because we will get into that in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, where it is explicitly stated again. But I'm just going to focus our attention this morning on what's probably how it's written in most of your Bibles. And there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we'll talk about the role of the Spirit and living by the Spirit, Lord willing, over the next, well, as long as we're in Romans chapter 8. Paul is continuing the two-age theme that he has began earlier. Really, in chapter 5, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Last week, we talked about those who are in Christ still face many of the trials and the struggles that we had when we were in Adam. Our, our, our fleshiness is still very much a problem that we deal with as a Christian day in and day out. Pl plenty of opportunities this past week where I was, be, I was reminded of, oh yeah, you're still fleshy, Nick. You still wrestle with and struggle with many things. But then you come to chapter 8. I mean, so, so Paul's talking about this struggle, right, through chapter 7. He comes to the end of it in verse 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Who's going to deliver me from me, my fallenness, my, my corruptedness? In one way, I've already been delivered in Christ. It's done. It's, it's an accomplished, finished work. But who is eventually going to, to deliver me fully and finally where I don't have any of this corruption um, or, or fallenness to, to wrestle with or struggle with anymore? And the answer is, thank be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? He's the, one that, he's the one that does it. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are delivered and we are thankful. You stand, as a Christian, you stand in a position of non-condemnation this morning. And that is like where you stand every single day and where you will remain every single day in Christ. There's no, he'll get into this later on in eight, how there's no possibility to lose that position in Christ. And we're delivered and we are thankful primarily for two reasons. Number one, because there's no condemnation. 
We are delivered and we are thankful because there is no condemnation for us. He says, there is therefore, because we have been delivered by Christ and we are assured of the ultimate full and final delivery when he comes, now, at this moment, there is no condemnation for us. You think about that. I am just as secure in my salvation the moment I was converted as I am now. And I know a lot more stuff now than I knew then. And I, and, and I put to death a lot of things in me that were still alive back then in my initial conversion that are not alive now and some things that are alive but not alive as much, prayerfully. <clears throat> but I stand just as secure in this standing of non-condemnation before God now as I did then. And then I think about all the days in between, the good days and the low days, the days of struggling, the days of weeping, the days of rejoicing, the days of failure, the days of faithfulness. And in all of those things, the, the, the one incredible truth remains is that God has been faithful the whole time. And that he has continued to speak and say to me every single moment of every single day, Romans 8, chapter, one, chapter 8, verse 1, my son, there is no condemnation for you. For those who are in Christ, we stand now. So that means as you read this word now, you stand not condemned now and now and now. And if you read this verse next week, and next year, and 10 years from now, the now is always now. You see how, how pervasive and widespread that truth is for us as a believer. You see the, 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 the solid rock, the firm foundation of which a believer stands upon, of which we will get to, um, we are then able to go forth and live this life of service and sacrifice for him and for others. Because you cannot lose the greatest thing that you have been given. No amount of sacrificial living or giving will ever, or loss for that matter, will ever be grounds or reason for the now to not apply to me. The now is always applicable to the Christian at all times. There is therefore because of what it is that Christ has done. That's what the therefore is there for. Because of what it is that Christ has done, there is now, at this moment, no condemnation. The law's requirements have been met, and the result of lacking the requirements that the law demands have been paid in Christ fully. There's nothing left that remains unpaid, no longer seen as a transgressor. The penalty has been paid. The power of sin has been broken, and we have been given the free gift of righteousness. And this word, and he says, there is therefore now no condemnation. In the Greek, the word no is the first word of the sentence. And in construction, um, the first word is placed for 
priority and emphasis. And so the first word of the sentence being no is where the emphasis and the priority lies in this passage in order to tell us to really to what degree is there not any condemnation to the degree where there is no condemnation. Not, not like there's mostly none, there's majority none. No, there's absolutely and completely 100% zero. Category, categorically, it speaks of something without exception. You know, growing up, my favorite football player was Barry Sanders. And you can go back and watch YouTube videos of him, and you can watch him. And I watch those videos, and I think to myself, I'll say to myself, there was no stopping that guy. And we say that now about people who are playing, right? There was, that guy would not be denied. There's no stopping him. But we don't say that literally in the literal sense. Surely, if he, Barry Sanders ran into a bulldozer, he would lose. He would be stopped. If he ran into a brick wall, he would be stopped. So we speak this way, but there are categories in which we're like, okay, I don't mean no as in no completely all the time. That's not the way the text speaks for us. The text speaks for us where there is no category that is imaginable or that can exist in which you will ever stand condemned in the sight of God as long as you were in Christ ever again. Nothing, nothing can outdo what it is that he has done. There is nothing mightier, stronger, or truer than God's forgiving, justifying declaration and work that there is no condemnation for you in Christ. And what is it that we have? No condemnation. The execution of a sentence of punishment after establishing guilt. Are you guilty? Do you feel guilty? There's a sense in which, in a very practical way, I say, I feel guilty and I am guilty because of the things that I do, the things that I think, the things that I desire, the way that I treat those who are around me. And yet the text says, no, you're not. How can that be? How can it be that I do things, I think things, so do you. No one knows, no one has a clue because you don't speak them, oh, but you think them. You, and there's things that you want, you desire. And there are things that we say and there are things that we do and, and if evaluated based upon purely innocent or guilty, oh, they're guilty. But yet, we come to the text and it says, no, you're not. Why? Because of what Christ has done and how he has paid the guilt on our behalf. I mean, we've, we've read through Romans over and over again and the role of the law and, and the guilt and all the things that 
that, that, that the law does in our lives and the fact that we are guilty before him in a, in a very real and practical sense. But in a judicial, in a, in a forensic sense, in a spiritual sense, no, you're not. Because Christ has paid it. When he hung upon the cross, his, and not, not just his work upon the cross, let me tell you, his entire life lived. What was he doing his entire life? Working. What was he working for? Perfection. Righteousness. That was, that was his life. By faith, you and I, who are, who are guilty and who are not righteous and who do not work for our salvation because we can't, we get that. What it is that he has done. His entire life, his, his what we would call his active obedience to the Lord, to his Father, his accomplishment, his work, his righteousness that he performed and that he worked out, we receive in full. That's the reason why. There's no condemnation for us. We're not guilty anymore in his sight. That's one of the most wonderful and sweetest truths of the gospel that there is. Forgiveness. You and I have complete and total forgiveness. There's no condemnation, no guilt for us because Christ has taken that. He has given us his righteousness, and he has taken our guilt upon himself and paid it on our behalf in full. And it wasn't like, okay, I've paid these sins up until this point. No, I'm talking about every single sin that the child of God has ever committed, is committing, and will ever commit. Fully put upon Christ and he paid it all completely. Listen, you're not not condemned because you are a good and faithful, strong, open air preaching, life laying down, sacrificing missionary evangelist. That's not what your non condemnation rests upon. It rests upon what Christ has done alone. We have all of these ways of evaluating, oh, am I a good Christian? Am I a bad Christian? Am I living well? I mean, yes, there is a role for us to evaluate our lives and and to put sin to death. And we've talked about that in Romans 6 and 7 and things like that. We're talking about just a categorical way in which the believer needs to see themselves and it's being not condemned and not guilty in his sight because it's fixed upon the work of Christ, not upon my, how I feel about myself or how good I'm doing, how poorly I'm doing day in and day out. Praise the Lord. My salvation is not fixed upon my performance, but upon his. We are delivered and thankful because we are not condemned, firstly, and secondly, because we are in Christ Jesus. That's really the crux of the matter. We are not condemned because we are in Christ. I want us to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. We were reading these verses last week in Sunday school. James was teaching, 
And I was reminded of something in the text that is just so, it's, it's such good news. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. What does God pen for us in his word for us to know? The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. One, one line, one exception, if we deny him, he will deny us. That, 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 that's what separates the non-believer from the believer. Not that the non-believer and the believer really, the, the morality of their lives sometimes looks very, very similar. It's the, the difference is that one denies Christ inherently and is separated from him. The other one does not deny him, but does not always live faithfully. Isn't that true? I mean, I'm how, this speaks to me. Because guess what? I'm faithless at times. And he's faithful. I am so thankful that he's, I, I, in my Bible, I have, a, I have a little heart written right there in the margin. Because I'm so thankful that when I am faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. To deny a person a, 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 an adopted child that is in the son would be like to, for him to deny his own son. And he can't and he won't. And so neither will he deny us. In your days of faithfulness where you're charging the hill, the gates of hell, and you're taken over, praise the Lord. God's good and he, and he loves you. In those days when you're languishing away and you're struggling and you're faithless, He's faithful, and the Lord loves his people. One of my favorite examples of this is in the Gospel of Luke. Join me in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 54. you got you to love Peter, right? Peter is the guy, the... Open mouth, insert foot, guy. Peter's proclaimed his, his undying allegiance and faithfulness to the Lord. And this scene, it just, it, it grips me every time I read it. Luke 22, beginning in verse 54. Then they seized him, talking about Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. What a coward. Following at a distance. Jesus, oh, I'll, fall, I'll, I'll, I'll die for you. Okay, let's see what happens when the rubber meets the road. That's, this is me. 
This is us following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them, among the people. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I, I do not know him. Faithlessness. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. Faithlessness. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine, wherever Jesus is, among the people inside, he has a view of where Peter is. And he looks and he turns at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Faithlessness. Peter denies the Lord, which the Lord told him he would do. And upon the third denial, turns and looks at Peter. And Peter at that moment is undone. Grown, you ever seen a grown man cry like a baby? Like shoulder shaking, weeping, sobbing? He goes out and he weeps bitterly. He's been faithless. And I don't know what that look looked like, but I imagine that it had the, the tone of, Peter, it's not about you and your faithfulness to me. It's about me. I am faithful. Just hold on. I'm accomplishing my work right now. And it's going to get far worse before it gets better. But we see what happens in Peter's life, faithless in this moment, and the faithfulness of God to accomplish his plan, picks Peter up. Though a righteous man fall seven times, he gets up. Why? Because he musters his strength, pulls himself up. No. Why, do you, why are you getting up? Because the Lord is picking you up and putting you on your feet once again and saying, okay, go. And you go and you do your thing and you live well for a little while, maybe for, you know, 30 minutes or so, and then poof, you're back on your face again and he picks you back up and you go. Because he is faithful. This is what those who are in Christ have. The steadfast love of the Lord. I was thinking of the way that Micah talks about God and, and imp implied in there is how he talks about the Son. Micah 7, 18. Who is, 
who, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. This is how he treats his people. He delights in showing steadfast love to those who are struggling, to those who fail, to those who are faithless, because he is faithful. Salvation was never based upon our performance of good works. It could never happen. You can never get into the kingdom by your own goodness. You can't stay in the kingdom by your own goodness. And you certainly will not finally receive the kingdom by your own goodness, but by his goodness alone. It was by grace you were saved. It's by grace you stay saved. And it's by grace you'll be forever saved in his sight. It's his faithfulness. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the question is, how does one get in Christ? And the simple answer that we've seen time and time again throughout the book of Romans is by faith. That's it. How does one have get in Christ? Have spiritual union with Christ? By faith. By faith alone. We've seen this over and over again. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What does the gospel say? Believe, trust, rest, and you live. You live forever with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What does the law say? Do, try, obey, or do you die? The heart of the gospel is that we're justified by faith. We have righteousness by faith. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because we are in Christ by faith and by faith alone. And even that is a gift that he provides for us. I love the way that Martin Luther puts it. This is a little bit of an extended quote, but I think it's worth reading. Faith, says Luther, unites the soul with Christ as a spouse with her husband. Everything which Christ has becomes the property of the believing soul. Everything which the soul has becomes the property of Christ. O happy union, the rich, the noble, the holy bridegroom takes in marriage his poor, guilty, and despised spouse, delivers her from every evil, and enriches her with the most precious blessings. Christ A king and a priest shares his honor and glory with all Christians. The Christian is a king and consequently possesses all things. He is a priest and consequently possesses God. And it is faith, not works, which bring him all this honor. A Christian is free from all things, above all things. Faith giving him richly all things. Think about what it is that Paul writes at the beginning of his um, letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God knew exactly what he was doing with you. He planned it. He ordained it. And he lavished it upon. And guess what? He continues to lavish it upon us. For those who are in Christ, simply by faith. You think about contextually how this applies specifically and how it would apply in the book of Romans. One of the things that Paul has done is he's continually indicted his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters because they had pursued a relationship with God upon the law upon their own goodness, their own performance. And he has systematically taken away from them everything that they could have relied upon. He tells them at the end of chapter 2, you, the Jews, you can't, even, you can't even claim the name of a Jew because a Jew is someone who has their heart circumcised and knows Christ. He's taken away their identity, their national identity. He's taken away circumcision. He's taken away their obedience to the law, saying you've not been obedient. And he's taken away their father of the faith, Abraham. Why would he go to such lengths to strip them of everything that they were hoping in so that they might turn to Christ by faith? That's what he'll get into in chapter 9. My, my hope is this. Guys, I have taken, I have systematically taken everything away from you that you could have ever depended upon for your own righteousness. Why? So that you might turn to Christ by faith and be found in him. And it being in him, then you have no condemnation. As it stands right now, oh, you are totally condemned. You're relying upon the name of a Jew. You're relying upon circumcision. You're relying upon Abraham. Don't you know what Abraham did? Don't you know what he believed? You're nothing like him. I was nothing like him. Say for the grace of God, I'd still be there. I'm trying to get you to see, brothers and sisters, it is by faith and by faith alone that we escape condemnation. And it's in the same way that that truth applies to not just to the Jews, but to every single person. Guilty for breaking the law, for breaking his commands, for breaking the requirement that he has given Personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. That's what he requires. That's what he demands. 
from every single person in this room and out of this room. We preach the gospel because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And say, stop trying to pursue righteousness, like forgiveness, reconciliation with God by, on your, based upon your own good works and your own merit. You can't do it. Don't you see what the law requires of you? Turn to him by faith. Well, sir, it can't be that easy. It can't be that just by faith I'm not condemned. You're, you mean to tell me that I escape com- eternal condemnation and I escape his wrath and his judgment towards sin, which Romans 1 talks about, and I receive complete forgiveness righteousness that's not mine it's given to me i'm justified i'm declared not guilty i'm innocent all of that i get all of that by faith and the answer from the christian is absolutely you contribute nothing that's his goal towards the Jew. That's his goal towards every single person who would be listening and hearing this. You must come to the end of yourself and turn to Christ by faith and by faith alone to escape the condemnation that is to come. A few ways that I think that this is I look, for, I look for ways in which this, this vertical reality for us, if you will, goes horizontal for us. I mean, we, we, we have this vertical reality, this divine declaration by God in which we are not condemned because we are in Christ, based solely upon his work, brought in by his grace, his electing love. All of that stuff is true for us. And... and, and And then I think about, okay, how does this go horizontal? How is this supposed to, this truth actually supposed to to take root within my life to then change me to a degree in which I then live differently around those, to, to those who are around me? And I think the first way is how Paul describes it in Galatians chapter five. It's for freedom's sake, Christ has set you free, 5.1. But what would he go on and say in 5.13? Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another. The, the firmer that you rest and stand upon your grounding in Christ not being condemned, condemned in him, the more you're grounded in that, you believe it, you meditate upon it, you love it, you cherish it, that's the degree at which you're free to lose yourself and sacrificially serve other people. It's people, who, it's people who are selfish with their time, who are self-centered with their, with their time, their talents, their, their possessions. Those are the people that stand on shaky ground in their justification in Christ. They're so afraid to, to sacrificially let go of everything 
because they can't possibly lose, because they don't know that they can never possibly lose the greatest thing that they have. Being assured that you cannot lose your position in Christ, that's what frees you to selflessly and sacrificially love and serve other people. Spouse, kids, co-workers, friends, family members. And then the other way that specifically that I think this is important for us to think about is what it is, one of the components that we have in not being condemned is the aspect of forgiveness. Scripture in Colossians 3.13 tells us that we are called to forgive in the same way that we have been forgiven. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is a wonderful tool for us to meditate upon in order for our vertical forgiveness to go horizontal with those who are around us. A failure to forgive somebody else is always rooted in a lack of understanding in the forgiveness that you've been given. Do you guys, parable of the unforgiving servant, right? We, we know that one. The guy gets forgiven of this hugely, incredibly large debt, is set free, and then he comes across another servant who owns him, just owes him just a little bit amount, and that servant can't pay him back, so he chokes him. He's like, give me what, I, give me what you owe me. After he had just like walked away from being forgiven of this massive debt, you guys know where that story occurs in Scripture? Matthew 18. What else is in Matthew 18? Church discipline? You think it's, you think it's a coincidence that the topics of going to somebody one-on-one to confront them of their sin, if they don't repent, then you go with them another person. If they don't repent, then you bring it to the church. You think it's any coincidence that that truth holds hands with the truth of being called to forgive someone else in the same way of which you've been forgiven? We, we are people that have been in, get forgiven this incredibly unpayable debt. Oh, how we should be slow in resting in, loving our forgiveness, and then being, being quick to forgive others and being slow to go to them and help them see, patiently and graciously helping them see where they still sin or where they still struggle. But people that have understand their forgiveness and the, the, the size of their debt that has been paid on their behalf are people that understand what true forgiveness is and, and, and want to, to show that forgiveness to others. And that's what leads us to the table. We partake of communion every single week because we are reminded, it is a, it is a direct reminder of where our non-condemnation and where our forgiveness comes from in Christ and what he's done for us. We partake. We, we, we view these elements and we think about this, like the song that we sang, the love of God. How rich, how deep, right? Like if the entire, if the entire, if all the oceans were ink and every quill or every stalk on the world, on the earth, were a quill, 
Every man a scribe by trade and the whole sky, an entire parchment, wouldn't be enough room to write out the love, how deep the love of God is for us. What it means to stand is not condemned. That's what we celebrate when we come to communion and we look upon Christ, the one who has paid our debt. So if you're here today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, then worship with us and rejoice as we partake of communion together. But if you're here today and you don't know him by faith and you're still working or trusting upon yourself, don't partake of the communion time, but think and consider how God is calling you to jettison your pursuit of righteousness with him based upon your own works and your own goodness and to come to him by faith and receive the gift of forgiveness by faith alone. So the elements are on the back table. You can get those and return back to your seat. We'll have a time of prayer and meditation uh, privately, and we'll partake of the communion elements together shortly.